so really what we're doing is we're, we're seeing where the cracks are, uh, where the light can get in to um, the faith that's in the Christian tradition. Um, and of course, I'd want to say, as I've said before, for those people for whom traditional Christianity, whether that's uh, evangelicalism, uh, any form of Protestantism, Catholicism, uh, Orthodox Church, whatever, anyone for whom any brand of traditional Christianity is really positive and powerful and works for them, I would never, ever, ever, ever want to knock that or cause any form of confusion or whatever. But I'm assuming that the lovely people in front of me here this evening, and anyone silly enough to listen to this in, pod in a podcast, uh, you are the outcasts among us. You are <laughs> folk who have moved to the dark side uh, and for whom that form of, of Christianity is not quite where you are. And that's what we're exploring. Last week, we looked at moving from the idea of the Bible um, as this bound volume of set texts to reading the scriptures, a, a dynamic um, group of ancient writings through whom we can continue to find Lots of wisdom, lots of warnings, lots of guidance, and lots of ways into the divine. Next week, we're going to be looking at moving from the idea of God as a name or a title to the divine uh, as something which is actually probably much closer to what God, quote unquote, is uh, in the scriptures and in uh, the, the Jewish and early Christian traditions. But that's uh, next week. This week, is moving from dogma to experience. I remember uh, as a very, very young evangelical Christian, I was brought up in, in the Catholic Church uh, at 16. I had quite a Saul on the road to Damascus conversion experience, nothing to do with Catholicism and Protestantism, but to do with my own life and um, in the context of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, and that came through the influence of evangelical Christians in the Scripture Union at Lurgan College, the school that I went to, and I will forever be indebted to them and to that, that experience. Uh, but I went into that world of evangelical, probably really fundamentalist Christianity, when you think about, about it back in those days, uh, as an innocent abroad. And I knew nothing about the Bible, um, virtually nothing. No, actually nothing. <laughs> and knew nothing about the theology of evangelicalism and the atonement and all of those things that we look at in a few weeks' time. And I remember saying to somebody in the Scripture Union that I, I was reading the Gospels. I'd never read them the whole way through ever, ever before. You know, of course, I'd read snippets of them in, at catechism classes and so on, uh, and RE, but never read through a Gospel. I, was, I read through all four of them and came in very excited and was going, oh my God goodness the things that Jesus said and the things that he talks about God and he talks about heaven and I remember you know of course we were all just young kids at the time I was 16 so the oldest person in scripture union was 18 but this wise old head who was all of 18 years old took me aside one day and said no you've got to understand we appreciate that you're a young Christian but we don't get our theology from Jesus we get our theology from Paul uh, so you don't read the Gospels for theology, you read the Epistles for theology. And at the time, I remember thinking, oh, I didn't know that. But now I do. And of course, that, you know, when you're young and new into things, you go, oh, that's how it is. And probably for maybe a decade, I never questioned that. Because that's how it was. Uh, I remember... 
uh, first year of, of my life in, in evangelical Christianity, I went to a scripture union camp. Anybody remember those? Um, uh, which was great. M Mike, have you been to one? Did you go to one? Did you lead one? No. Uh, they, they were interesting things, and, and I fully enjoyed my, my experience there and loved everything about it. But I look back at it and go, what a strange little world it, it was. It was like semi-militaristic. It was an all-boys camp, and the, um, the leaders were all officers. <laughs> and there was a, like a camp commandant or, or whatever it was. You know, it was a, a bit bizarre. Happily, not as bizarre as some of the camps that, that have hit the news in England uh, over the past number of years. But uh, it was all, it was my first introduction uh, to Bible study, uh, because each morning, I mean, there are lots of, you know, football matches and hill climbing and running up and down rivers and stuff as well uh, in some island off the west coast of Scotland. Uh, but every morning there was a devotional and then there was a Bible study and then there was an evening service. So it was all built around the scriptures and so on. Uh, and I remember being taught, or we were all taught, this brand new Christian song. And it was one of those things that has stuck in my mind ever since. Uh, and it went like this, unaccompanied. It went, feelings ain't facts, feelings ain't facts. It's on the word of God that I stand. Feelings creep in and prepare the way for sin. It's the word that keeps me going day by day. When Satan comes to tempt me and lead me from the way, I just look on to Jesus and he shows me the way cause feelings in facts, feelings in facts. It's on the word of God that I stand. Oh yeah. It's on the word of God that I stand. Oh yeah. It's on the word of God that I stand. Oh yeah. That was a little song. Now you can see why it's stuck in my mind. <laughs> For almost 50 years, believe it or not, uh, close on it, which is a bit of a scary thing. Now, apart from the dodgy double rhyme that they threw in there, um, what's wrong with that little ditty? We sang it endlessly because, as everybody knows, if you want to learn about someone's theology, you look at the hymns they sing or the songs that they sing. Uh, and that was at the very basis of that whole ethos that I was... Um, finding my, my feet within. Uh, so apart from the dodgy double rhyme um, and maybe uh, the tune and everything else, what else is wrong with that? Well, everything. <laughs> everything, I, I, I would like to say. But not least, it, it's a circular argument. Feelings ain't facts. Oh yes, they are. Anybody ever felt love? Anger, depression, joy, fear, anxiety, not real. They're not facts. So, I mean, clearly there was a, a real concern in whoever wrote this little song, and no doubt there are much better songs and hymns and so on that express the same thing. You can't trust that. You've got to trust the solid word of God, because that's fact. Feelings aren't. Because feelings are experiences. And we don't go by experiences. We go by what we know from revelation. And then the little song did its own backflip. Because it had the words, When Satan comes 
to um, tempt me from the way. Uh, When Satan comes to tempt me and lead me from the way, what is that? It's an experience and a feeling. Okay, that's what the song is against. I just look onto Jesus and he shows me the way. What's that? It's a feeling and an experience. So even the little song itself couldn't quite uh, hold its way through um, and in terms of being consistent. So what I want to say this evening is the opposite of that little song. And you'd be pleased to know I'm not going to burst into song again. Uh, or nor am I going to compose a song uh, trying to say what I want to say. I'm just going to bore you for the next 17 hours. Here's the thing, folks. The Christian faith in its entirety is based on experience. In its absolute entirety, it's based on experience. Uh, I've, I've just had coffee before I came here with a university friend I hadn't seen for 40 years. It's incredible. Uh, you think we'd spend time catching up about you know, how's, how's your wife and how's your family. We talked about this stuff the whole time. Uh, and we were talking about how everything, everything that we know, everything that we have, everything that we are, is experience. So the idea that the Christian faith isn't based on experience runs counter to the fact that everything is based on experience. If you have a thought, June, what is that? It's an experience, an unusual experience. experience. I love it. Well done, you. Um, (laughs) I see Ivor's being very quiet. He's not going to go in and say, that's right. He he knows who he has to go home with. Uh, If you you sort of think, no, the Christian faith is based on faith and on reason and all the rest of it. But all of that thinking is an experience. Your intuition is an experience. Everything that we know around us, even all of science, is based on our experience. And I remember saying this before at one of the other seminars that we did. You know, if we were uh, in human bodies, but we had the senses of bats, our entire science would be different. Because our whole understanding of science is based on what we can weigh, see, measure, understand. And if our senses were those of bats instead of those of human beings, we would have devised uh, instruments and ways of measuring things and understanding things that would be totally different. So who's to say our science is right? If we were super bats, maybe that science would actually be closer Uh, to what reality is. So the idea that experience is something to shy away from or to run away from, I think, is is, is wrong in in a philosophical sort of way. But even in a way from the Christian scriptures, it's clearly the case that everything in the Christian faith is based on experience. And the central experience of the Christian faith is what we might call the Jesus event. Jesus was not a theory or a doctrine or a formula. Jesus was a human being who said and did and experienced certain things. And people, as we'll see in a few moments' time, reflected on that and and transmitted some of the things that he said and talked about some of the things that he did. But that's all experience. The Jewish faith is, is, is centered on the experience of the Exodus. Uh, the Christian uh, Faith goes on to to talk 
about other fundamental experiences like the day of Pentecost. That was an experience. Paul's conversion, the basis on which he wrote lots of those theological and philosophical epistles, was an experience. <coughs> the revelation of John or the apocalypse at the end of the Bible, weird, strange, and um, trippy as it is, began with an experience. It was an account of some sort of esoteric experience. So the idea that somehow uh, we turn our backs on experience, because experience can't be trusted, but doctrine and dogma uh, and you know, the word of God, as, as understood in the ways that we were looking at last week, can be trusted, is an aberration from the Christian faith as it originated. It was all based on experience. So why now should we shirk away from experience and replace it with something else. And I want to suggest in, in the talk this evening, there's actually no good reason for, for doing that. So we had this wonderful experience of the Jesus event that people responded to positively and negatively with worry, with concern, with joy, with happiness, with understanding and misunderstanding. And over a period of a few centuries, that wonderful experience of the event of Jesus became formalized and dogmatized, and I want to suggest eventually fossilized. And while there are parts of you know, the, the Christian tradition that will still talk very strongly uh, about experiencing Jesus, that's sort of restricted to a particular experience. And then the rest of it moves over uh, into understanding and, and following and believing uh, everything in the Christian faith according to certain dogmas and, and, and doctrines. So let's look, first of all, at the, the, the Jesus event. I've got to say at the very beginning that everything that you and I know about the Jesus event uh, in terms of a, somebody else's experience comes to us primarily through the Gospels. Uh, and it's important to say that the Gospels, of course, were not historical writings in the way that we understand historical writings. Uh, and that ought to be a clue with regard to how we might relate to them and how we might relate to the Jesus event now. If we were to try to put a sort of modern word on what the Gospels are, uh, we could say perhaps in, 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 they're like modern um, docudramas. Uh, and docudramas have uh, a great mixture uh, of fact in that they're based on a real event or based on real people. Uh, and that's what we find in the Gospels. They're, they are based around a real person, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and then the way histories, if we could call them, that were written in those days, or lives of the great figures were written. You would have a real person, uh, but there are more reflections on the personality and the impact of the person than they were anything that would come close to what we understand as history. So they were a mixture of actual events, uh, remembered, though translated in the case of the gospel, words, uh, conflated accounts where similar things that somebody would do, in this case Jesus, might be woven into one story. Or two different things that might have happened on two different occasions would be brought together for dramatic effect. 
Um, stylized narratives is one of the interesting things. Uh, Ivor, you will remember from our times in, in Union Theological College uh, that even there it was accepted that many of the stories of Jesus follow a certain form, a certain pattern. Uh, and there's a good reason for that because that's how people best remember stories. You know, it wasn't quite once upon a time and they all lived happily ever after. But, you know, fairy stories, and I'm not saying these are fairy stories, but, you know, fairy stories, tales, legends and so on follow a particular pattern. Lots of the stories about Jesus follow a particular pattern or a particular form uh, just because they're easy to remember that way. Uh, they contain passages uh, that, that might be described as what he would have said had this happened so it's not that the thing might have happened or that Jesus actually said it uh, but because this is about the personality and the impact of the person as the gospel writers are reflecting they go well if he was in this situation this is the sort of thing he would have said now we, we shouldn't sort of bolt too much at that because we uh, all 20 years or 30 years ago whatever we all ran around with the WWJD um, little wristbands, what would Jesus drink? Is that what WWJD stood for? Uh, what would Jesus do? Uh, so the, for the gospel writers to go, what would Jesus have said in this situation? And then to have written it down uh, isn't such a strange or odd thing to think of. Uh, and then in these lives of the great people, uh, there would also be legends and myths woven in. Now, that's the way the stuff was written in those days. And there's absolutely nothing in the Gospels, in our story about the Jesus event, uh, that would suggest that the Gospel writers wrote in any other way. That's how it was done. And that sort of comes as a bit of a surprise or a shock to many people, because we're sitting here in the 21st century, and we're used to having really rigorous journalism and people delving into things and fact-checking and all the rest of it, to try to do that with the Jesus event. To try to do that with the Gospels is just a complete aberration in itself. It's a, it's a nonsensical thing to do. Uh, it, it's a, not quite, but it's almost like looking at um, William Shakespeare's great plays. Richard III, for example, uh, and trying to tease out, you know, did Richard III actually say that? And did this event happen? And what did they say when they were there? That's not the point of it. Maybe Richard III isn't such a bad example, except he wasn't such a good man uh, as Jesus was, clearly. Uh, but it, it, in many ways, it, it's quite similar. It's about the real person, real events, but it's about the personality and the impact. It's about the experience. And the Gospels were written so that people would experience the Jesus event. Uh, John in his Gospel pretty much says as much. Of all the things that Jesus said and did were written down, all the books in the world couldn't possibly contain them. Uh, but these are written so that you will believe. Uh, and belief is what? It's an experience. It's a reaction. So the Gospels were written for us to react to them. Uh, and while lots of people have made happily for them and quite rightly so very good academic careers uh, about trying to work out you know are these words that Jesus said uh, did this event happen what does the archaeology say that's all very interesting but I'm going to say that actually it's not remotely important it really isn't important if we can decipher this although it's a Greek translation uh, it probably refers back to an Aramaic 
statement that Jesus made. Uh, this might be one that is a bit of a free translation or uh, a summary of what Jesus said. That's not how the writers thought. And if we're going to react to the Jesus event, uh, we've got to react in ways that they were, are asking us to. So when we go back home, as we will after this, and immediately read a gospel or two, or maybe all four of them, if we read them in that light, just let them hit you. Who was Jesus? That's the question that we're invited to ask. Who or what was or is this man? And thousands of books have been written to answer that question. Thousands of them by very learned scholars who will delve into the Greek of the Gospels and will look at the tenses of particular verbs that have been used. And they will argue, well, an aorist tense was used here. Do you remember that? From our, our days again, the theological college, Ivor. The aorist tense was used here, where it's the perfect tense that is used there. Mm. And then somebody else will go, no. And somebody else will go, ah. <laughs> and all of these wonderfully learned people, and it's great that they do it, come up with the answer Jesus was A, B, C, D, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. Um, What's the Hebrew al alphabet? Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, or whatever it may be. They come up with dozens of different answers. All supposedly saying to us what the Gospels are really saying. Now, I think that's good news for us, actually. The fact that they do come up with dozens and dozens of different uh, expressions of who they say the Gospels say that Jesus is. Because the answer to the question, I believe, is... Who was Jesus is an answer that you give to yourself and I give to myself as we react to the Jesus event. And then we can talk about it and share it between one another and we can agree and disagree and find points of contact and points of disagreement and we can get excited about different bits of it. But all of it, I want to suggest, is right. Well, not necessarily all of it. I mean, clearly if somebody comes across with something absolutely uh, crazy, you know, suggesting that, that Jesus was a power crazy megalomaniac who wanted to take over the world and kill innocent people, you think, well, I'm not quite sure how you got that uh, from what we were reading there from the Jesus event. But, you know, within the parameters of normality. So if someone is to say, oh, I just love the revolutionary spirit of Jesus. Yes. Somebody else, I just love the peaceable, quiet, withdrawn nature of Jesus. Yes. I love Jesus preaching. I love the fact that he didn't say much. I love the way he would really strike out against the Pharisees and be quite cross with them. I love how tender and... The point is, the Jesus event is the event of the man's life of his being, of his personality, and it's given to us through the filter and strain and coloration and all the rest of it of the Gospels. But I want to suggest that there is more than enough there for us to experience the Jesus event 
for ourselves. And it's that experience of the Jesus event that I believe is at the heart and must be at the heart of the Christian faith as it moves forward. But we're, we get that squashed and squeezed out of us. No, you must believe that Jesus is, and then we're told what Jesus is, uh, probably Lord and Saviour, and I'm not disagreeing with that, but Lord and Saviour mean particular things. And the whole point of writing the Gospels was not, maybe my friend was right back in the days, was not actually to write theological tomes. The point of the gospel was to enable people to experience for themselves as much as it's possible to do so the event of the life of Jesus. And it's a brilliant thing to experience, but it's an experience. It's not a dogma. It's a personal interaction for each one of us. It's not an adherence to a basis of faith or a statement of faith or or a creed or any of those things that have become so important to us. Now, of course, there was one particular thing about the event of the life of Jesus that stands out. There are many things, uh, but the one that perhaps makes Jesus different from many other people whose lives we can also interact with is, of course, the event called the resurrection. And it's important for us to, I think, grapple a little bit with the event of the resurrection if we're going to experience what it's about. And again, and I I spent, you know, in the early parts of my life in evangelical Christianity going down this particular line, uh, which I now think is, is mistaken, which is trying to demonstrate and prove that the accounts of the resurrection are, in our terms, historical accounts, Uh, And if you put all the evidence for the resurrection together, you can only come up with the conclusion that it was an historical event that happened in a particular place in a particular way. And physically, uh, the dead body of Jesus came to life, albeit in a transformed way, uh, an actual tomb with an actual stone, had the stone rolled away, uh, and Jesus with uh, nail marks and all the rest of it, stepped forward. And if only we could have had a camera of some sort on the tombstone uh, at that moment we could have seen and we could have recorded all of that and uh, you know old books in the 1970s like who moved the stone which is was maybe still is pivotal in many christian circles they 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 take that line and i want to say that's fine and again if people find that comforting or helpful or useful that's great but i want to suggest that's a misunderstanding of what the resurrection narratives, of what the resurrection event is about. And it's not only a misunderstanding, but I think it's quite a dangerous one because it catapults our experience of resurrection back into the past and pinpoints it to a, a moment, uh, 30 or 33 or whatever it might be, uh, AD, as, as we, we might now term it, whereas resurrection I believe was never meant to be that and was never meant to be presented as that in the gospels or even later on in in, in the new testament so there are lots of things if when you look at the resurrection narratives in the gospels that might be a bit surprising considering it is the great transformative event in the christian faith and the great transformative event uh, about jesus so you might expect they would have put more about it in the Gospels. 
You know, this is mind-blowing stuff. So what does Mark tell us about the resurrection in his gospel? He tells us women went to the tomb and found it empty and a stranger said, Jesus isn't here, he's risen, that's it. Oh, come on, give us more. This is the great transformative event, if it's to be understood in, in those sort of narrow historical terms. You know, tell us a bit more than that. If you brought all the resurrection narratives together, I doubt if they would fill a couple of pages. And maybe only so because Luke uh, goes off and tells a lovely long story uh, and so does John about barbecues and the beach and all the rest of it. Um, But if you look at Matthew and, and Mark in particular, they tell us hardly anything. And none of them, for example, tell us um, anything that comes close to a description. Nobody says this is what happened. The accounts of the empty tomb vary, as, as, as we know. Uh, how many women, which women, how many angels, or were they angels, or were they young men? They, they vary. The location of the appearances vary. Mark doesn't have any. Now, there's a bit that was later added on to Mark's gospel that mentions them. But in the original gospel of Mark, uh, Mark doesn't mention any appearances. Matthew has all the appearances happening uh, in Galilee. Luke has them happening in Jerusalem. Uh, And John has, has them sort of happening all in the space of a couple of days, except for one that's a few weeks later. And then later on, Luke says these experiences went on for for 40 days. Give us more of them. If this is about that sort of narrowly understood historical event, it's a strange way of going about it. So maybe they're trying to tell us something other than dead body in tomb, stone rolled away, physical body reanimated and transformed, walking around, going through walls, eating fish, disappearing, appearing, and all the rest of it. And there's a hint of all of this, because if you look at Paul's description when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we know it, and he's describing his own experience, he says, my experience was the same as theirs. Very strong in this. He goes, you know, Jesus appeared to Peter and to the disciples, then to 500 people. He appeared to me uh, as to someone born out, out of time. Uh, but my experience is the same as their experience. And on that basis, I'm an apostle just as they are. He gets quite shirty and very definite about it. And then you look at uh, accounts of Paul's experience from the Acts of the Apostles and their visions. Their visionary experiences, their personal experiences, their revelations, if you like, uh, in terms of him understanding and seeing things that nobody else saw or heard or understood. So maybe our understanding of resurrection needs to be changed a little. I'm going to suggest that one way of understanding what the gospel writers and Paul is trying to say about the event of and the experience of resurrection is this. In some very, very definite way, however you want to understand it, some of the early followers of Jesus were utterly convinced that he and his presence was still with them. 
that death had not been the end for him. But here's the thing, more than that, because you could say that about virtually anyone, and it's a well-known fact that uh, many, many people who are bereaved will say, I still feel the sense of my husband or wife or uh, my friend around me. Uh, sometimes I even talk to them or I just got a sense of their presence. So it wasn't just that. That would be expected. But here's the thing. They are saying through that experience, they are having an experience of God, an experience of the divine. That was the sort of experience they believed that Jesus had. And that, I think, is what we call Pentecost. When they, they were saying the same spirit that Jesus experienced, the same spirit that Jesus had, we are experiencing through his presence now. And that, I think, is the heart of resurrection, the heart of Pentecost, the heart of the Christian faith. And it is an experience. Do you remember uh, in the Acts of the Apostles uh, when uh, Peter was arguing with already some of the disciples who wanted to settle down and codify things and get rules and regulations brought in, into place uh, and Paul, uh, Peter had the experience of Cornelius coming to, to his home and saying, tell us about Jesus. And as Peter talked about Jesus, what happened? Do you remember? The Spirit fell. They started experiencing part, at least, of the fullness of God. And Peter goes back to the folk in Jerusalem who were a little bit pulling in the reins and can we codify this and make the rules and regulations up again and he uses the wonderful words the spirit fell on them as he did on us at the beginning some of the most lovely and also sad words There's, you can't help but feel that Peter's going oh Lord I wish it was like that again I wish it was like it was at the beginning but now Cornelius has it. And when you look at, in the Acts of the Apostles, which again are written in the same way as the Gospels are and all of the stuff we looked at, but nonetheless, when you look at the preaching of the Gospel, what was it? Uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Paul talking to uh, the, the, the crowd, the rabble that I... Conium or Lystra, wherever it was, uh, in Ephesus, when you look at what the gospel was, they told stories about Jesus. It used to make me scratch my head when I was reading the Acts of the Apostles. Paul would go to a certain town, he would preach the gospel, and then you get examples or samples of how Paul preached the gospel. And of course, if Paul was, you know, one of us, uh, or, you know, a minister in, in, in this country preaching the gospel, he would start off by telling everyone what? Well, they'd sinned. 
So, every, you know, they would start off by telling everybody that they'd sinned and they'd start pretending nobody could get close to God. And then they'd talk about how Jesus was the incarnation of God and Jesus died on the cross as the atonement for sins and the resurrection of Jesus validated that. And because of that, if we are united uh, spiritually with Jesus, then we can be one with him and one in the body of Christ. And then that's going to bring us all into the kingdom of heaven. And that's the gospel. What did Peter say? Jesus of Nazareth, a man well known to all of you, healed the sick, preached good news about God, did good things, but you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Go, oh, where's the gospel? Now, it's stylized accounts and so on. I realize that, uh, and we don't necessarily have to take it literally, but 2,000 people said, I want that. And what they wanted was the experience of connecting to, relating with, reacting to this event that was the person of Jesus. And also, and this is where it gets glorious and intuitive and mystical even, in doing that, in really connecting to the Jesus event, they just knew they were with him. And they knew that he was with them. And somehow... Through all of that, they knew that they were experiencing God in a new way. And we'll talk next week about what we mean, perhaps, by, by God. It was all an experience. And that, I think, is more than anywhere where we need to go again. What we need to rescue. What we need to rediscover. But instead of building on that, although, you know, you look at the, the, the next few centuries or so uh, in, in Christian experience, and as I said last week, it was gloriously mixed up that people having, you know, this idea and, and of Jesus and that idea of God and people tried to put it all together in lots of different ways. But it's impossible to look at the history of the Christian church and not weep. Not necessarily literally, because some of us aren't given to weeping an awful lot. But inside, really, to, to weep and mourn. This isn't... What, you know, what we read in the Gospels, what we read in the Acts of the Apostles, even what we read in the fervency of Paul writing and talking about his mad, crazy churches that were all over the place and doing all sorts of things, the vibrancy, the life, the immediacy, the experience of the divine, the confusion, the harmony, all of those things just bit by bit by bit drained away, drained away, drained away, and we got replaced by ritual and formula, and dogma, and codified beliefs. And for those who want to say, well, that's how it should have been, and that's how it had to be, that's fine. But in my heart of hearts, I don't think that's how it should have been. I don't think it is fine. And I cannot, although I mean, I, I've got to say, as I mentioned last week, some of the ritual and, and the formulas that we come up with in terms of worship can, can help we you know some of the glorious music and the color and all the rest of it uh, still can help uh, but less so i think the, the codified beliefs and doctrines and dogmas uh, that we've been pressed into and for me you know one of the real 
crunch point of all of this is, in my heart of hearts, I cannot believe that Jesus would recognize himself in the theology of the church. I just, you know, I look at the person I'm reading about in the Gospels, and I, I just cannot imagine, and of course I could be wrong, it's never been known, but you know, it could, could be the case uh, that I could be wrong. But I just cannot imagine Jesus going, ah, now you've understood the soteriology uh, of my presence and that you've understood the incarnation and you've understood my uh, hypostatic union with the Father. Whatever you do when you read the Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark and Luke, I don't think that's the image of the picture uh, of Jesus. And certainly the immediacy of the Jesus event is so far away from the codified dogmas that we now embrace. Now, dogmas are fine if we're trying to grab, you know, some sort of words and understanding. We're trying to say, if we're trying to say something magnificent about Jesus and the Jesus event, and that's the language we want to use, that's great. But I've got to say, it's very seldom that we're saying something magnificent. We're rather saying something that everybody has got to adhere to. If you're going to be orthodox, if you're going to be sound, if you're going to be a real believer, and that, to my mind, just seems to be millions of miles away from the Jesus event and the experience of Jesus. So my, my suggestion is this. And it's only a suggestion. We can never quite do it. But in our hearts and in our minds and in our spirits, we do the very best we can to go back to the beginning. It's very difficult to start over again, isn't it? It's very difficult when you've traveled a hundred miles in the wrong direction to admit it to yourself and turn the car around and go back again. It's a really difficult thing to do. I was out walking one of my dogs a few weeks ago, thinking about an interview that I, that I was going to be doing in a few days' time. Uh, and I was walking, uh, it, it was night, night time, and I walked up a particular road, was walking down uh, again. Uh, and I was deep in thought, and I was also making sure that my lovely dog, Meryl, uh, who loves human beings but not other dogs so much, uh, if other dogs were coming, I was making sure she was on the right side of me and not going to eat and devour another dog and so on. Um, so much so uh, that I was walking past, and then I saw two friends in, uh, in one of our choirs, uh, and they came and started chatting to me. Uh, and we were talking about new houses that were b being built, uh, and I was saying... Yeah, you know, the new house is built down there near where we live. And they looked at me and they go, you mean up there? I said, no, no, down there where, where, where I live, they've built new houses down there. You see where the lights are? Uh, and they're going, you mean up there though, don't you? I said, no, I'm down there where, where I live. And then we moved on to talk about something else. So I went, we said goodbye and I walked on uh, with the dog and got down there and went, good Lord. I'm three quarters of a mile past my own house. <laughs> I was so deep in thought. And even when I saw the, the name of the street uh, that I thought was the one that was going to lead me back up to my own house, I went, oh, what's that doing there? <laughs> and of course, I had to retrace my steps and go, gosh, they were right all along. I'd actually gone too far. I was so deep in thought. Have you done that, Ivor? 
not not that bad. Yeah, I was I was pleased to know that, that, that it, it's a well-known thing in driving called um, highway hypnosis, uh, where you just get so deep in thought, you you go past your turn off and all, all the rest of it. Either that, or this will be the last time I'll ever speak here because it, I uh, truly ha have lost the plot completely. Uh, but even that tiny little incident, I was going. I, I met them the next day at the choir and I went, you were right. <laughs> you knew better than I did where my, where my own street was. Uh, when we go down a path, as we have done in, in the Christian faith and all its manifestations for 2,000 years, it's a big, big thing to say. Maybe we've gone down the wrong road. Not entirely, because, you know, it's maybe not a straight road. Maybe it's circular or spiraling or whatever it might be. But I think we really, really need to take seriously that no matter how good our arguments might be and how good our theologies might be, if we've started stepping down the wrong road, everything else that we're saying is going to be sort of wrong. But such, I think, is the greatness of, you know, of, of the divinity of God that uh, even that, of course, can be brought round to mean good things. But I think we really need to interact again with the Jesus event and to interact not through the lens of doctrines and dogmas and theologies and the histories of the church. And that sounds a strange and arrogant thing to say because... It sounds as if I'm saying, aren't you going to take the wisdom uh, of hundreds, thousands of years of Christian thinkers on board? Uh, well, yes, but only in their context, where they say things and write things that really stir my heart and my emotions and expand my mind uh, to grasp more of the Jesus event, yes. But where they don't, I'm going to suggest that we have to be courageous enough to say no. And that we recognize that in the Jesus event, uh, we're not trying to nitpick our way through history, but we're there to be confronted with a, a force of personality, with a reality that was so great that the first people said, this is like having God walking in, in our midst. I mean, seriously, when was the last time any of us read the Gospels and went, whoa, I'm walking with God here. That's how great this is. That's how it feels. And that's how they felt. And then we've really got to trust our experience of that. We've got to trust our experiences of spirituality. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we've got to trust our explanations of them but we've got to embrace the experiences were many folk here involved or around in the days of the do you remember the Toronto blessing the Toronto blessing whatever it was uh, gave a number of us in different contexts around the world uh, an immediate sense of the presence of God and that was wonderful. And then it was destroyed. Because we had to fit that experience into a particular theology. And we had to critique that over against other people's experience. Uh, and it became 
another way of judging how godly or spiritual or in with God you were or how good your church was and, and so on. I was talking to a friend who was very much at the heart of the whole Toronto blessing thing in, in Ireland back at the time, a couple of years ago. Uh, and we were saying, what, what, I was asking, what, what did you make of that? And we chatted about it uh, and we came to the conclusion, it was great. What we did with it was rubbish. And when I talk, Steve, about the experience of God, that can be in any setting. Uh, I remember having a really strong experience of God uh, during a Church of Ireland funeral. Uh, and this when I was a teenager. I went to, to a funeral and it was a staid, settled funeral service in, in an old building, probably as old as this one, somewhere out in the country in, in County Down. Uh, but I just remember as, you know, the minister was preaching and not listening, but just this sense of, oh my goodness, in this place for hundreds of years, people have worshipped God. People have poured out their prayers. People have buried their dead, married their loved ones, baptized their children. Uh, and that sense of wholeness sort of encompassed me. I was maybe 14 or 15 or whatever. So when I talk about the immediacy of experience, I'm not talking about, you know, fireworks, though I'm including fireworks. I'm including the reality of that, the breakthrough moments, or the sense of deep security or peace or motivation or strength to push against uh, injustices, uh, desire to bring fairness and justice and love and equality. That's all the stuff I'm talking about. Because that's what the Gospels are dripping with. They're exploding with. That's what the early church was exploding with. Uh, that's how it ripped through uh, the Roman Empire in next to no time at all. It did not rip through the Roman Empire because statements of faith and dogmas and doctrines had been codified. So it's not about a particular spirituality. It's not about a particular expression of the Christian faith. It's about trusting all those moments when we experience God, the divine, the presence of Jesus, when we interact with the Jesus of the Gospels, but much more importantly, the Jesus of the Gospels whom we believe is with us today in whatever way that's possible. And we can talk about all of that again. And that, I think, is where the real heart and dynamism of Christianity lies. And we sort of wreck it and ruin it, except it keeps breaking out, so you know, we're not allowed to wreck and ruin it completely. But we do our best to when we, we codify it. The worst thing, in my mind, that ever happened with the Toronto Blessing is we tried to understand it. And we tried to explain it, and we tried to defend it, and we tried to put a theology around it instead of going, whew, God, this is great. This is great. I remember the first time in, in that uh, Toronto Blessing experience, briefly, uh, when I was prayed with, it was like I, I was a tree that had been felled. And, and my wife, Hilary, was saying, that's what you look like uh, when, when you, you know, it's like, wham. 
And I remember as I was falling to the floor and, and flopped around like a fish with like electric shocks going through my body for 45 minutes uh, down in a church in Dublin. Uh, I remember the very first thought I had as, a, as this happened was, a, oh, there is a God. Followed by, oh, sh- there is a God. Those were the two thoughts that went through my mind. The first one, this is great. And the second was, oh dear. (laughs) The first one, this is real. The second one, oh gosh, this is real. (laughs) And for 45 minutes, I I was just assailed by the reality of God, but also of my need to embrace the reality of God. And a lot of that time was spent trying to understand some of the the passion uh, of the heart of God for people who were oppressed and marginalized and outcast and that certainly set me uh, on a particular journey but that was just one particular type of experience so Brent, how do you how do you um, interpret that experience now uh, i look back at it now roy and go um personally i i'm convinced of, of the reality of the experience uh, i now trust the reality of it Uh, And I don't try to explain it. Uh, I deliberately don't try to explain it. I don't try to... Sorry? Far from it. Far from it. Uh, And and this is part of what I mean as well about um, us not shirking from our experiences. Because our experiences are the only reality we know. We don't know any other reality other than what we experience, and we really should embrace them. Sorry, I forget. You can take away or you can challenge what I believe, but you can't take away my experience. Yeah. What Ivor was saying there was you can take away or challenge what I believe, but you can't take away or challenge my experience. And, you know, it's so, to use uh, Richard Dawkins' term, stultifyingly obvious <laughs> that that is correct. So obvious that we don't buy it. So I will tell you, Ivor, that no, that wasn't what you experienced. <laughs> I was having a conversation with, with my friend about uh, another couple uh, that, that I was with, and um, the, the, the man in the couple was, was a, a real Richard Dawkins style atheist, absolutely bought the books, everything. Lovely, lovely man. Got on like a house on fire with him. His wife was uh, much more traditional uh, in, in, in her faith um, within Catholicism. Uh, and at a meeting, she was explaining uh, an experience of a ghost. Uh, and it was a really interesting story. And everybody in the room said, no, that couldn't be right. Everybody. Not just the atheist husband, but all the Christian people. Everybody in the room is going, no, you could not have experienced that. It had to be, and then all the rational explanations came. Instead of us going, tell me about your experience. What was it? How did you feel? What did it do to you? I mean, it wasn't a particularly good experience. It frightened the lining out of her. But it was her experience. But whether it's from atheism or conservative Christianity or whatever, we are frightened of experience. Now, so often I think, Steve, maybe as you've suggested, 
We might be right to be frightened of experience if someone takes their experiences, then they try to make a theory and a dogma out of it. Instead of just going, that's what I experienced. Now, someone might say, well, how, how do you know you didn't imagine it? Well, maybe you did. That's an experience as well. Roy. Has the church not been discounting the experience of the Holy Spirit for centuries? Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it's a, I think it's a really funny thing, Roy, that uh, intellectually and in our doctrines and dogmas, we discount experience. But very often people come to church and services for an experience. So I, I enjoy very much, though I don't do it very often, going to certain cathedrals in England for Evensong. Uh, and in some of them I don't particularly like it, actually, because I don't, you know, it doesn't, doesn't do it for me. But I've been in some, like I love Durham Cathedral, for example. Uh, and one of the things about the Evensong and the choir there is it's not quite perfect. Uh, there's a particular tenor whose timing is just a wee bit off. <laughs> and that makes it for me. But every time I've been there, which hasn't been that often, you know, maybe you know, eight or nine times, I love that experience. I don't go for anything other than the experience of Evensong and what it might do to me and what I might experience in it and what experience of the divine that I might have. Uh, sometimes, you know, not very often, but sometimes I've gone to very long um, uh, ceremony-type churches uh, and don't do it very often, but sometimes I have. And there too, sometimes... I go for that experience and I'm not quite sure what the experience is there that I'm going but often even there even there often there also there is some aspect of God and the divine that is being presented but I'm not going for the clever words and the theology of whoever it is preaching however good that might be I'm a big Leonard Cohen fan and Leonard Cohen, you talking about religion and so on, when he made his comeback tour at 68 or 74, 74 years of age, uh, he said to the crowd in London, you know, I've spent a decade uh, studying deeply in the religions and in the philosophies, but happiness kept bursting through. And that sometimes is what I think, even though we do try to codify it, um, the spirit of God keeps breaking through. It's not in any sense that I'm saying, you know, it, that can't be at Mass or in a Presbyterian service or whatever it might be. But the real reasons why we're going there is to experience. It's not to listen to dogmas. We're at time. We're out of time. That's it. Next week, we're going to look at um, God, the divine, moving from God to the divine um, and that is a positive movement it's not from God to atheism it's from God to what I was terming last week metatheism <laughs> uh, or was that in a different place maybe I didn't use that word here did I okay no that was a different conversation there we go I, sorry 
Oh, yeah, yeah, but they got there after me. I'd got, I'd got metatheism first. Okay. Next week in um, Carrickfergus. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, folks. Thank you for coming out on a cold and frosty night.